Hi, this is Tiffany Bovo. Welcome to this episode of the What's Next podcast, where I have the pleasure of welcoming Jeff Wald to the show. He is the founder of Work Market, an enterprise software platform that enables companies to manage freelancers. Jeff has founded several other technology companies, including Spinback, a social sharing platform, actually eventually purchased by Salesforce. Jeff began his career in finance, serving as managing director at activist hedge fund Barrington Capital Group, a vice president at venture capital firm Glenrock, and various roles in the M&A group at J.P. Morgan. He's also the author of The Birthday Rules and The End of Jobs, The Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations. Jeff frequently speaks at conferences and in media and startups and labor issues, and today he's our guest on the What's Next podcast. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me, Tiffany. Yes. Well, we're going to start this out with what everybody loves, bullish and bearish. Three questions. Bullish, you're for it. Bearish, you're against it. Nothing too painful, I hope. Are you ready? I am bullish on these questions. Okay, good start. All right, here we go. Number one, robot bartenders. Bullish or bearish? Bearish. Wow. But it might be better now, right? Because you need social distancing. So if you want a drink, <laughs> someone needs to make it. Okay. Next one. 3D printed houses. Bearish. Oh, God. Not what I would have expected at all. All right. Third one. Man, I might go for three for three. On <laughs> okay. Third one. Gamifying innovation. Bullish. Oh, thank goodness. Thank goodness. Whew. We avoided the bear sweep. Like, Yes, it would have been a total, total sweep. All right, so um, let's let's think about this. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna start with the gamifying innovation because I think you are involved in some amazing stuff. Um, this sort of future of work prize competition. Why don't Why don't you step our listeners through that? So I will tell you this: writing a book is really hard, and it's not fun. And it took me seven years, Tiffany, to write this book. And the only reason, quite frankly, it's even done at all, and I got up to the 240 pages my publisher wanted, was because I got a bunch of collaborators. And I, you know, as I was researching the book and through my career building a work market before we sold it to ADP, I had the opportunity to meet with all these amazing men and women that were actually shaping the future of work. And I thought, you know what makes a better book than me going on for 240 pages? asking these people what they think the world of work looks like in 2040. Let, let me see if we, I can convince them to put together short essays on the world of work that they are shaping. And so we have leaders of the largest staffing firms, leaders of the largest unions, the heads of HR, it's in the largest companies. I mean, just an amazing, amazing group of people. Now, one of my other hats I wear is I advise the X Prize on uh, some future work stuff they're doing. And I thought, you know what? Let me create a little XPRIZE type thing. So I personally put up a $10 million prize to see which of these authors was going to be the most correct. Now, I did it in 2040, unlike the XPRIZES, which are very near-term things. Uh, so it's been super fun. And I am so honored that uh, they took the time and contributed to the book. What a fantastic story. And and what were people thinking when you first sort of came to them and said, I think I want to do something like this and I'm going to give away, you know, $10 million of my own money. They thought, is this a joke? Like, is you, are you being serious right now? Um, look, these are all people that I've had the honor of being close with for, for a very long time. And so they were honored to be asked 
they i was honored that they you know it's funny because they were like oh my god thank you so much i'm like no no thank you so much They're like no thank you so much i'm like okay we got to stop thanking each other <laughs> and so you know i was so happy everybody that i asked said yes tiffany but the saying yes and then getting approval from your company if you're still in a role is difficult because i had a bunch of friends that said yes that are senior heads of HR at major companies that maybe control all of e-commerce or other places that, you know, make most of the cars in the United States. And both of their companies said, no, we, we won't let you do it. There's a difference between saying yes, getting permission, and then actually finishing the four to six pages. Uh, it was something that you're comfortable being published. And then, of course, there is the, I asked more than 20 people, received more than 20 submissions, and then I had to pick uh, who makes it and who doesn't. And that was probably the most difficult. And it really was around this kind of vision of work 2040, correct? You know, Mm -hmm. just kind of um, anything that you found without sharing things you can't share, right? But anything you found as kind of key themes, what did things change, you know, since um, the beginning of 2020 to the end of 2020? I'm talking about in what people were talking about, not obviously all the things we know that have changed. It's a really, really great question. You know, there weren't many underlying themes that were unifying in this. There were a lot of different points of view. We had some writers that are incredibly pessimistic with a very dystopian view of the world in 2040. We had more writers, quite frankly, that were very optimistic with a wonderful view of 2040. There was one writer that I mean, I'm I'm obviously summarizing here, but basically he was like, yeah, it's just all going to be the same. Yeah, it's all, not not much is going to change. But I will say this. I would always ask them as I interviewed them, because obviously, you know, they didn't just contribute to the book. I interviewed them for my two thirds of the book. There is an underlying theme that I would say everybody talked about, and that was the need to be a lifelong learner, that the amount of time it takes for a skill to become unmonetizable uh, is decreasing. And every worker, whether you're a freelancer, a temp, a full-time worker, part-time worker, every worker is going to constantly be needing to reinvent themselves and make sure that they are upskilling and reskilling. That was a constant theme. Well, what's interesting about that, right, this, the whole comment of we have to you know, learn and then unlearn and relearn again. Uh, and so many businesses now are squarely focused on that reskilling conversation. And how do you think, well, who have you seen? I, you don't need to use company names necessarily, but you know, what have you seen, I should say, around this kind of reskilling at a corporate level? So you're now you're listening, you're a manager of a team or you're a leader of a group or a leader of a division or a CEO of a of a business listening to this podcast. And you go, you know what? I've heard this time and time again that I need to really think about reskilling, but I don't even know where to begin. What would you say to them? I would say, yeah, this is a really messed up area. Nobody knows anything. Nobody knows, does the education system own this? Should I be going to online schools? Should I be going to my local community college? Does my company own this? Should I be pushing HR and development for more resources? Do I as an individual own it? Do I just say, look, I have to find this out on my own? Are there government programs to support my retraining and reskilling? What happens if I lose a job because that job function no longer is done by a human? Who's responsible then? This is an emerging area, and it is something that I am incredibly worried about, 
for our society when we talk about the amount of jobs that might be lost to robots and AI, because it is not something society has done very well, which is support people that need to be reskilled. But the flip side to the concern based on historic perspective is lots of new technologies coming on stream. I know you don't want me to maybe mention company names, but there's a great company called Transfer VR. You put on your VR headset two months later. I mean, you take it off from time to time, but uh, two months after you run through the program, <laughs> you, you know, take it yeah, off you, you take it off when you shower, yeah, yeah. sleep, yep, yep. things like that. Okay. Yep. But you know, a couple hours a day, a few months later, you are fully trained in a new skill set and job ready, right? These uh, trainings are being done in partnership with corporations. Uh, and universities, and you are job ready to start on a manufacturing line. That to me is mind-blowing, amazing, and where the world is heading. And I think it's so important, right, that that there's so many things that have been so highly disrupted during this time, and I'm just going to focus on education. But the education system, like so many other things also, have really needed to innovate. That kind of classroom, sit, listen to lecture, go home, take a test, you know, has been forever. I'm a listen visual learner. I am not a read learner. So send me home to read three chapters and then get tests the next day. I would always do terrible. Stand in front of me, tell me stories, get me engaged in what you're actually trying to teach me. Give me the test. I'll nail it. So it, it's just a matter of, you know, how do people learn now and with different generations and now kind of being lifelong learners, not, you know, you stop learning at 21 or wherever you're listening to this in the world, right? When you're finished with your secondary education, you know, that that's not when you stop learning. That's kind of almost when you, now you start learning real world things. Very true. Very true. There was one person that was one of our contributors, Daniel Pianco, who runs one of the largest uh, education investment firms. And he put forward in his article a statistic, 96% of college presidents feel like they're preparing their people for the workplace. 94% of frontline hiring managers think people come in knowing nothing and incapable of starting their jobs uh, right out of college. So huge disconnect going on there. Uh, but to your point, people used to learn all the skills they needed by about 24, usually vocational training, internships, apprenticeships, obviously the university setting, and then that was it. You just continued your career. No longer the case. To your point at 21 or whenever you are starting in the workforce is when your journey of learning is beginning and picking up skills is beginning, and you will constantly be needing to do that. Well, I think that gap between the um, expectation and reality or you know whatever, it, in all kinds of topics, it's like that. It, even in innovation, we're a very innovative company. Employees and customers don't agree. Executives think, oh, yes. You know, employees think, oh, no, no, no. Right. <laughs> right? Or we think we invest in our people and employees go, mm, not really. Like I haven't been, you know, you train me on things that, you know, don't really help me do my job. Right. So I, I just recently finished some research on the power of the employee experience uh, sort of being the Achilles heel to anything else you want to do, right? If it's a great place to work and they feel like they're enabled, they innovate more, they innovate faster, they're more resilient, they're more open to change, they're more collaborative, kind of all those things. And then from a technology standpoint, right, they have the ability to get trained online just in time or whatever technology it is that you're using, uh, lends itself to a more compelling customer experience. Um, and then, you know, you see greater growth and we saw 1.8 X greater growth from companies that had those two things nailed EX and being employee experience and CX being customer experience. But in that, to your point, you just made it a few minutes ago, the executives feel like they're very focused on EX yet. The employees did not agree. 
right? And this, they they actually f- also felt that it, many of them would talk about how to grow without even talking about the employee. And I think that goes back to this whole reskilling conversation that's investing in the people, that that is the greatest you know, I'm putting asset in air quotes, but I don't like calling humans assets, but I think you get the point, right? Like that's the greatest thing you have. It's really a combination of people. Violent agreement, violent, violent agreement. You know, I will say to companies, if you don't have a well-defined culture document, then you don't really know what your culture is. And if you're not, and it's, it's one thing to have some values up on the wall, the culture document goes through the behaviors and the policies that support those values. If you say that you're employee centric and you have no policies to support that, if you have no behaviors that are supporting it, then you're not employee centric. You just wrote a word on uh, on the wall and it means nothing. We would always do the annual exercise of call bullshit. Here's here or here to this value. Do we do this? Yes or no. And if we don't, let's just be honest about it. Let's change it. Let's either change the value and be honest with each other, or let's change our behaviors and policies so we're really supporting the value. Because if you've got all of those brains bringing their authentic selves to work, feeling comfortable to question and challenge, feeling comfortable to innovate, feeling comfortable that they know exactly where you are, why they're there, and where this company's going, you're going to be much better off. Well, that's such a great segue to the next topic I wanted to talk to you about, right? Which is your book, um, The Birthday Rules, because I think a lot of this has to do with, I was raised uh, by a teacher. Mm -hmm. So- Me too. Yep. That was, and while I was a terrible student, which probably drove my mother crazy. um, Uh, Yeah. Yeah, not not me. Yeah. I wasn't (laughs) a good student at all, right? She was just like, God, I hope she becomes something in her life. (laughs) But it's because school was not my thing because of what I just said, right? The mm-hmm. way it was being taught, the way I was, you know, absorbing and consuming and testing just didn't work for me. Um, so anyway, I digress. But let's go back to uh, the birthday rules that why don't you spend a few minutes kind of talking about what that book was about, why you did it, because it was not what I expected when I was doing some research before uh, we started uh, our podcast today. So why don't you share with our listeners what's that, what that's all about? So I will tell you this. I uh, have two brothers. My older brother happened, and his wife happened to be the two best humans that I've ever met in my entire life. And they were very concerned because their oldest, uh, Jonah, had asked for a phone. Jonah was seven at the time. And they didn't know what to do. When do we get this kid a phone? When is he capable of handling the responsibilities that come with a phone? What are all the other parents in Weston, Connecticut going to do? And my older brother made a throwaway statement. He's just like, you know, somebody should just write a list of when kids get what and everybody's got to follow it. And I thought, that's a great idea. I will do that. And so fast forward a few years later, and I had hired a bunch of researchers and we took together all the information that all the developmental psychologists said about different permissions as it comes to technology, different capabilities of the average child on brain development. And we put together a framework, and and Tiffany had to be a framework, right? It can't be prescriptive because every child's developmental path is different. Every family's value system is different. Every family's economic capabilities are different. Just because the prefrontal cortex is developed enough at 11 for a child to hand the responsibility of a phone doesn't mean that you want to give that kid a phone. Doesn't mean that that particular kid can handle that phone. Doesn't mean that you can afford a phone. 
or maybe your child's riding the bus or doing something else where they're out and you want to make sure that they can get in touch and you want to give them a phone at nine. All that's fine. Right? This was a framework for helping parents to give those permissions specifically as it relates to technology. And I think that is a conversation my parents never had to have with me <laughs> because, you know, I didn't get my first computer until I was 19 and my first cell phone sort of around the same time. But I can't imagine having that conversation with a six or seven year old, right? And and also it's going back to what we were just talking about on learning, the way they consume, learn, the speed in which they can navigate themselves to what they're looking for. Do you think that's going to have positive effects? Let's just focus on education for, for a second and then I'll move on to the other, you know, the sort of the downside of it. But on the education, do you think that the things they learn at a very young age on a quote unquote mobile device, right? Or on the internet will serve them well from a learning perspective? It's such a great question, Tiffany. And the short answer is nobody knows. Anyone that says, oh yes, or oh no, that, that's, that's bullshit. They don't know. Like we've got to study this. We've got to figure it out. As is my answer on all things, labor statistics, you know, ask me in a, in a little bit and we will, we will have the answer to it. But I can make an argument for, I can make an argument against. No, nobody knows. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I feel like, you know, I remember sort of the encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you had to go look it up. And now I, sometimes I find myself in a rat hole. Like all of a sudden somebody says something about some bear that's extinct somewhere in the world. And then all of a sudden I, 20 minutes later, I know everything about this bear. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, is that good? Is the curiosity what is really good there? Well, maybe, right? You know, look, I worry. I thought I saw a great quote the other day. You remember when we thought access to information was what stopped, was holding us back as a society? Yeah, that wasn't it. Because we gave everybody access to all this information and we're not contextualizing it. And so when we have kids that are out there looking unfettered through the internet without the critical thinking skills necessary, I worry a lot about them going down into rat holes, not on bears, but on topics that aren't so wonderful, whether they're racist topics or bigoted topics or a host of other things. It's that to me is is a big danger. And I, I don't I worry a lot about society when we give unfettered access to information, unfettered access to social media and a host of other things without context. And I'm a firm believer of context. Uh couldn't agree more. Um, I think that that is something that is overlooked consistently. Actually, in my book, um, the entire foundation of the recommendations I gave around business growth was, what's your context? I can't answer it yeah. for you, right? I can't guide you unless I knew who's your customer, what's your industry, what's your competition, what's your employees. I mean, you know what I mean? You got to kind of understand the context. And that subtlety of context gets lost in a lot of opinion around some of these big questions, especially when it comes to, well, when should I have my child have a cell phone? Yeah. Right. Look, and, or, then, and then the critical thinking that goes alongside it. Okay. So you have got some context, but do you know how to think about this intelligently? Oh wait, there's only one person that has that point of view, but 17 experts have said this and it's gone through this process and here's the scientific method and why that's important and judgment and reason without those that you just have a bunch of people yelling at each other things that nobody agrees are facts and anyway we could dive into this rat hole about society right which, large, which but, yeah not the goal but i 
I get concerned when I think about kids and how their brains are not capable at this point of doing it. Clearly, we have adults that aren't capable of doing it, but be that as it may. Yeah, and and there's the flip side of this as well because I you know the beginning of this talking about uh, the birthday rules and kids and social media and using sort of technology at very young ages. You also tackle the what is the right time to have conversations with your kids about technology, but more importantly, especially now with a lot of uh, you know remote and distant learning, there's a lot of social isolation for kids, and I can't imagine sure. being socially isolated at you know at 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, like in my, you know, when I was growing up, I would be, it would be really difficult for me. And so this entire kind of, uh, you know, depression and, and suicide side of kids having social, social, uh, isolation, but also access to all this technology, you, you tackle that as well about that conversation with parents and, and maybe you can share. Well, these are, again, these are meant to be frameworks. I think the important thing, Tiffany, is to have the conversations. Whether you have them, you know, I suggest using the birthday as, you know, I guess tongue in cheek, the annual review of, well, look, you've done a very good job managing your social media, not spending too much time on it. Therefore, we're going to allow you to have WhatsApp this year and to say, but let's talk about what that means. But it's also, and now that you're 15, let's talk about drugs and alcohol. What tends to happen is that parents, if they have conversations, those very difficult because nobody wants to have a conversation about oral sex with their their child. But if you're not having the conversation, if you're not putting it in context, if you're not giving them the critical thinking skills and the way to think about different situations, they're getting it somewhere. And what tends to happen is that parents have those conversations about those tough topics when there is some sort of negative event that occurred. Kid overdosed at school, suddenly we're going to talk about drugs. If that's the first time you're talking to a kid about drugs, good luck. Good luck. Right. I, I, mean, I genuinely mean good luck. And I may mean, appreciate it. it. Sounds sarcastic. I genuinely mean good luck. Like I hope it works. But you have a much higher degree of having it work if you've had a regular cadence of conversations. Do you need to use a birthday? Of course not. I just made that shit up. Whatever. Birthday every quarter, whatever. Just have a cadence of having that conversation so it's not so awkward. That's the point. Absolutely. And I think part of it is this is all uncharted territory. I mean, who would have thought you'd be educating your kids from home, working from home, everything from home, such a disruption over the course, depending on where you're listening this to this podcast in almost a year of, of this uh, pandemic that has really removed a lot of our choice. Mm-hmm. You know, the things that I want to go see a movie. Oh, I can't. Right. I want to send my kids to school. I can't. Right. And, and so this sort of level of choice. And so, um, I think what what I really enjoyed about the concept of the birthday rules is how to have these conversations that everybody is feeling uncomfortable, that we just have to, especially with everything else going on, which we don't need to sort of get into, but it's what do they think and what will they think and how do we help shape sort of the next generation of entrepreneurs and leaders and, you know, Jeff Wald to create companies that are very valued. I mean, you know, how do we create that next generation, I think, is what we should really focus in on why it's important to have these conversations. I agree with everything you said, except maybe there being a lot more Jeff Walds out there. I'm not sure that that's, <laughs> that, that's the solution to anything, but my mom <laughs> but I thinks think so, but I, I don't I know that we can find many other people that would agree. <laughs> But I, but I think you get the point. Yes, like here's somebody, I'm just saying a Jeff Wald, right? Where a Jeff Wald who has created multiple businesses that have been purchased by ADP and Salesforce and others, 
And you take your own money and say, I'm going to create a competition. I'm going to give away $10 million for the vision of work in 2040. Like that's a very compassionate point of view, right? That's a very, um, you know, uh, sort of a servant leader, if you will, to use the buzzwords. And that happens because of what was formed at a very young age and how your relationship is with people and, uh, you know, uh, adults as a kid, right? And then your superiors or whatever it might be. So I think that there's a lot to be said for that. Well, I, I A, I'm humbled by it and I'm grateful. And, and B, that part I would certainly agree with. You know, the to the extent that we are creating people that think critically, that are compassionate to those around it, that are grateful for everything that they've had and are looking for ways to give back and to innovate, then God bless. Well, there you go. Well, so let's let's bring this home. So uh, I guess you're, the competition is closed at this point because you've got the, you know, right? The competition is closed. The competition is closed, but let everybody know when that's going to kind of come out or how they could follow that because I think it's pretty interesting and exciting. I think some would want to see what those predictions are going to be for 2040. So what's the next step on that? So the next step is we're going to provide some updates uh, probably annually at jeffwald.com. There's a, a section on my website about the future of work prize. So we'll start seeing, uh, you know, who's ahead, who's behind. But uh, the competition itself won't won't end until 2040. Oh, it's going all the way till then? It is. I mean, look, as much as I'd love to just give away $10 million uh, in the near term, uh, we got we to gotta root for some inflation in this one aspect <laughs> of my life. Well, gosh, you know, that, that $10 million uh, then, you know, I don't know, 2040. What happens if somebody who wrote it in 2040 – you know, isn't isn't around to accept it in 2040. The rules of the competition, as drafted by uh, by my <laughs> attorneys, are very clear. We'll go to your state, uh, and the the but they won't. Your state won't get a vote. So everybody that is in the competition votes for somebody else's piece. You can't vote for your own. But the so the estate will not get a vote. Okay, fair enough. Uh, and so are you doing anything along the way between now and 2040 that people can sort of participate in and, and follow along? Well, they can certainly read the book. And I would love anybody's point of view as to which of the, uh, the different writers they think are better, because certainly that will sway uh, a lot of the opinion of people uh, that, are the, that are the voters. And I've actually heard from a lot of people already, and that's been my favorite reaction points to the book. Well, excellent. Well, thank you, Jeff, so much for spending time with us here today on the What's Next podcast. How can people follow your work and get in touch with you uh, if they'd like to going forward? Well, there's Twitter at Jeffrey Wald. You can follow me there or uh, you can connect on LinkedIn or my, my website, jeffwald.com. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for joining us today. It was really a fun conversation uh, all about how to raise uh, you know, great kids and have really tough and uncomfortable conversations with them, but also about sort of the future of work and what we can uh, look forward to you know, as employers and employees. So thank you for spending time. Thank you so much for having me. What a fun conversation. It was so interesting to hear, you know, thinking about when your kids should get a cell phone. How do you have these really difficult conversations with them? What are the things we as adults can do to make sure that we're setting them up for a healthy and successful life? That's kind of number one. But number two, really thinking about the future of work, what it will look like five years, 10 years, 20 years from now in 2040, and how we can approach that with, with some sense of 
positive versus thinking that it's just about removing and replacing jobs. So I hope you found this conversation really enlightening. I enjoyed it. Please follow me, subscribe to the What's Next podcast, leave some feedback. I appreciate you spending time with us here today. Have a great rest of the day.